The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the um, 10th of March 2020 and we're going to look a little bit into sickness and healing. Um, we're going to do look at some koans with that, uh, that um, relate to sickness especially. Um, this is I'm taking up this topic for, for a number of reasons. Um, obviously illness is on people's minds at the moment with the uh, COVID-19 virus um, and also uh, quite a few people, uh, students I know are struggling with issues to do with uh, sickness and healing. So it seemed like a good t time to take up this top topic. And another thing um, that, that sort of got me interested in it um, was a, a um, TV series. Um, it's called The Young po Pope and it's by a, an Italian director, Paolo Sorrentino. I guess it got shown in Italy before it got exported. And uh, in this um, series, which is about what it sounds like, a young pope, um, this pope performs a whole bunch of miracles uh, and, and some people, um, because of this, consider him to be a saint. Um, and he's quite a, he's quite a um, contradictory kind of character. But in one, in one scene he, he prays as a, as a young child and reverses the, the terminal illness of a school friend's mother who's on her deathbed and miraculously is, is revived. Um, and, and later on in, the, in his life when he's actually the Pope, he prays for an infertile couple and against all the odds the, the wife conceives and gives birth to a baby. And um, I was just acknowledging that this, this um, performing miracles is an important part of Catholicism and um, one of the criteria for sainthood is to have performed at least one miracle. And um, it raises my mind, well, what is a miracle? And um, why, why would it be so important? Well, if you, th if you just sort of, even if you don't look it up in the dictionary, you probably know that um, a miracle is something that goes against nature that overrides the sort of normal order of things. And I, I went to and looked it up, and this is what it had, an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by, neutral, by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. So one way of thinking about miracles is that they're important because they prove that, that there's a God and that God does good things. This is in um, quite stark contrast, really, to Buddhism. Um, there are sutras, especially Mahayana sutras, where you have supernatural things happen. Um, different abilities um, displayed by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. But um, 
they really they really seem like they're meant more for sort of in allegorical terms rather than as actual occurrences. And at the same time as you get these stories, um, there are also um, uh, warnings. These powers that are, are displayed are not um, divine, but they're the results of um, meditation acquired by these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas because of their, their mind training. Not, um, but the Buddha often, quite often warns people, warns his students that supernatural powers, although they may exist, are not the point and actually can be a distraction. They can, they can, um, people can get caught up in them and, and lose sight of the fact that they don't liberate people in the fundamental kind of way. At one, in one sutra, the Buddha is asked by a student, why don't you perform a miracle to make the people of Nalanda more confident in the Buddha Dharma? Wouldn't it make them believe you more? And um, he says that supernatural powers displayed uh, for that kind of reason, in order to impress people, are no better than, than magic tricks, sleight of hand. And he says the only supernormal power fit to be practiced is the ability to help people to get rid of their suffering according to their natural development for their own good and using suitable methods. So it's very, very simple. It's being able to really able to see what somebody needs to to um, see more clearly, to wake up. If we then go to Zen stories, it's even more um, uh, clear. They're very occasionally in one of the koans you'll get something, some kind of supernatural thing happening. It's usually because the koan, has, that particular koan may have been based on, on a legend. But mostly um, the stories are very down to earth and certainly um, Zen masters don't perform miracles in the usual way that we think of miracles anyway. And the, and the koan that we're going to look at today, the first of, of four, um, is called uh, Baso's Sun-Faced Buddha, Moon-Faced Buddha. And the other ones we're going to look at in, in subsequent talks are Ummon's Medicine and Sickness Cure Each Other, Dao Wu Tending the Sick, and Dongshan is Sick. So um, four different ones, two from the Hekigan Roku and two from the Shoyu Roku. So just, um, it's a short one. The case goes like this. The great master Basso was seriously ill. The head monk asked him, how are you feeling these days? The great master said, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. That's it. That's the koan. Um, we have a little bit of 
biographical material about Basso. Um, his dates are 709 to 788 and um, Basso, uh, Basso Duizzo is his Japanese name. His um, Chinese name is Matsu Daoyi. He was, um, he was a student of, of Nanyue Huairang, Nangaku in Japanese. And after Hui Nung, the sixth ancestor, he's the most um, well-known of all the ancient Chinese Zen masters, and a very important key figure, really. Um, he was the first Chan teacher um, acknowledged to use the staff to jolt his students into awakening, and also just the use of stories uh, between masters and disciples. The, the beginning of that use is... Um, attributed to to Basso, so extreme, extremely important figure for us in 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 Zen. And um, this is I'm reading from um, Andy Ferguson's Zen Chinese Heritage. He says that unlike some other Zen masters of his time, Matsu did not leave an extensive written record of his teachings. Instead, we know him largely from imaginative legends that reflect the awesome sense of presence that he conveyed. Um, he emphasized in his teaching mind, that mind is Buddha, um, and this place is itself true suchness. These were favorite expressions of his. This is a little bit an extract from um, a Chinese text that um, account, uh, recounted the biographies of the masters, the Wu Deng Hui Yan. It says, Zen master Ma Tzu Daoyi, it's Baso, of Jiangxi was from Shifang in Hanzhou. And this is um, near, um, near the city of, modern city of Chengdu in Sichuan province, so in the west, but in the west of China. His surname was Ma. He entered Luohan Temple in his home district. His appearance was most unusual. He strode like an ox and glared like a tiger. His extended tongue covered his nose. On the soles of his feet, his veins formed two circles. So you can already see the kind of the myth-making that's happening here. But we can imagine that, that these stories wouldn't be told of him unless he was an imposing character. And he's said to be have to been been a, a large, uh, strong man. He was um, six. Says that six other um, disciples studied with uh, Nanyue Nangaku, but only Matsu received the secret mind seal. So he became his Dharma successor.
there was a, a prediction made by a sixth ancestor, Hui Nung, that um, and he said this to Nan Yue, Hereafter, from the area to which you will go, a horse will come forth and trample everyone in the world to death. And this was understood at later times to be a prediction of the um, presence of Ma, Master Ma, Basso. And um, of course, trampling everyone in the world to death is a way of saying, bringing uh, many people to the great death, the great awakening, in other words. And then just going, skipping to the end of his life, um, which is when our koan is um, happening, um, it's said that, that, that Basso had 139 disciples, each becoming a spiritual master in a different place, where each of them ceaselessly, con ceaselessly conveyed the teaching. In the year 788, the master climbed Ximen Mountain in Jiangchan. There, as he was walking in the woods, he saw a flat spot in a cave and said to his attendant, This ruined old body of mine will return to the ground next month. As these words, these words came to pass, he subsequently became ill. And this... this illness was his final illness and this is when the, um, the head of the temple, the temple director, asked him um, in this version, how has the master's honoured condition been lately? And and master replied, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Let's have a look a little bit more at this case. The great master Basso was seriously ill. The head monk asked him, how are you feeling these days? So um, the great master, and he, he was a great master both in his, his stature, um, physical stature and his, his uh, Zen stature, stature, but still he was subject to death, to sickness, and he was seriously ill, he was on his deathbed. And then we said that the head monk asked him this question. Um, the term um, used for this head monk is, is that he was the head of um, the business office of the, of the monastery, so one of the major administrative positions in the in the monastic system of the time. And he comes, he, he doesn't come and perform a miracle, he comes and asks, he inquires, how are you feeling these days? And He could be just coming to to um, ask after his teacher. This may be his last encounter with his teacher. But whatever, however he means it, um, he doesn't just get um, an entirely 
ordinary answer. And yet at the same time it is ordinary. And this is part of the of the um, the point of the koan that one has to look into when working on this koan. In uh, Japanese what he says is Nichimen, nichimen butsu, gachimen butsu. There's, there's a sutra um, that lists the names of, of hundreds of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and in this sutra there's one called the sun-faced Buddha and this sun-faced Buddha lives for 1800 years and there's another one called moon-faced Buddha who lives for one day and one night. So he says, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. So as well as being an answer to the, to the um, monk, administrator monk to his question, he's also teaching to the end, even without really even trying. And the, 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 the point that the student takes up in this is to understand what, what Master Basso is saying, the spirit of what he's saying and the underlying meaning. What was his tone of voice? What was his attitude? And we might, might get a clue from his, his perennial teaching watch, which was mind is Buddha, or this place itself is true thusness. Roshi Kaplow, um, commenting on this koan, he said, being a Buddha means becoming one with all conditions. There's a um, Japanese poem that um, goes very well with this koan. The pine tree lives for a thousand years, the morning glory but for a single day, yet both have fulfilled their destiny. We could say, when, we, when we're sick, we feel pain. Jerry Wick, commenting on this, said, Sometimes we are well for years. Sometimes we are sick for years. Sometimes we are sick and recover quickly. Sometimes we are sick and we die. Uh, Tenke Denson, who is a, uh, a uh, Soto teacher um, in the um, 17th century, um, he said about this case, long or short, what realm is this? It is not to be understood as a carving, a sculpture, or an icon. Joshu called it an oak tree. 
Unman called it a dried shitstick. In the scripture of, of Buddha names, it says that Sunface Buddha lives for 1800 years and Moonface Buddha enters extinction after a day and a night. But what about your own Sunface Buddha, Moonface Buddha? Is it something long or something short? How do you understand it? Set your eyes on the absolutely inextricable within yourself. Set your eyes on the absolutely inextricable within yourself. Apparently when um, Yasutani Roshi was about to, to die, um, this, is, this, come, this story comes from John Tarrant. Um, Yamada Roshi asked him the same question as is asked in this, in this uh, koan. How are you feeling? And um, Yasutani Roshi said, um, It's fine when I sit down, but I feel a little dizzy when I stand up. This um, koan appears both in the Hikikan Roku and in the Shoyo Roku. And um, uh, Jerry Wick, Wick, in his book of commentaries on the uh, Book of Equanimity, um, says this about this koan. Don't become attached to the body but at the same time, don't abandon it. Don't be attached to the mind, but at the same time, don't abandon it. Be peaceful, but don't seek some absolute state of peace. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. And he tells a story, um, this time from Suzuki Roshi. When he was very ill and near the end of his life, Suzuki Roshi, this is Shunryu Suzuki, spoke to his students. We may believe that Zazen will make us physically strong and fundamentally healthy, but a healthy mind is not just a healthy mind in the usual sense, and a weak body is not just a weak body. Even though I die, it's all right with me. That is Buddha. If I suffer when I die, that's all right. That's suffering Buddha. No confusion in it. We should be very grateful to have a limited body like mine or like yours. This is very much the same as what Tenke was saying. What about your own sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha? Another story is told about um, Shunryu Suzuki when he was um, very ill. Um, this one, uh, Tai Shimano, Edu Roshi, visited him, Suzuki, Shunryu Suzuki, and he asked the same question. 
how are you feeling these days? And Suzuki replied, they have a new name for me, cancer. Now I'd like to turn to um, take, take a little bit of a different tack on this and um, return to the book I was quoting in a couple of, from a couple of weeks ago, In Love with the World, um, by Mingyo Rinpoche. And I um, mentioned last time for people who were, for, who were here that um, Mingyo Rinpoche was is a recognized tulku and, and has quite high status position at a number of different monasteries. Um, comes from a family of Rinpoches um, and um, in that role lived, lived a relatively sheltered and comfort, comfortable life and undertook to go on pilgrimage um, as, a, as a homeless one in order to explore himself really and to find out who he really was um, and particularly to explore the extent of his that his mental well-being you could say was dependent upon conditions he wanted to test himself and really um, see what it was like to have all the his status and titles and persona and everything all stripped away and we looked a couple of weeks ago at um, his tentative start on that journey. And I want to take up the, the same story, but a little later on now. Um, eventually, his, uh, the small amount of money he had with him ran out, and he had to turn to begging um, to survive. And by this time, he was in uh, Kushinagar, which is um, the place where uh, the Buddha died, and um, he was he was um, sort of s set up a place to sit. He didn't wasn't under any shelter or anything, near a stupa that marked where the the Buddha's remains were cremated. Um, the place is called Parinirvana Park. And he writes. And this is, this is about um, starting to beg. I had thought this through, I knew the drill, so to speak, but it's not too hard to imagine eating whatever goes into your bowl when your attendant only serves you your favorite foods. I had vowed to eat whatever I was given. I would not refuse an offering of meat if it was presented as arms. I would not starve to death to keep, protect my own preferences. By now I was quite hungry. When I stepped into the restaurant wrapped in saffron, the waiters recognized me. He'd, he'd switched from his Tibetan robes to uh, the robes of a wandering ascetic, so saffron robes. That the, so the restaurant staff recognized me, and using a term of respect for a holy man, 
called out, Babaji, Babaji, you are Hindu now. You are Hindu now. Even with this jovial greeting and my many rehearsals, my blood froze. For the second time that day, I, I stood still as a statue, my palms sweaty, my voice stifled, my mouth quivering. I wanted to run away. An interior voice goaded me on. Yes, you can do this, you must. But my body said, no, you can't. The waiters began to stare. I had to force the words from my mouth. My, my, my bunny is finished, I stammered. Can you please give me something to eat? The manager displayed neither surprise nor disdain and matter-of-factly told me to return to the kitchen door in the evening after they had served the paying customers. I had the impression that however momentous this request had been for me, he was an old hand at the begging business. Um, begging has is, is long been seen in Buddhism as a powerful way to, to um, um, confront the ego and, uh, and um, uh, learn to let go of the self. So he, he, um, he goes back um, when he's, when he's um, as, as he was told to in the evening and he's very, very hungry by that stage. Um, it's been a long day of waiting and uh, he's given restaurant leftover, leftovers not from the from the cooking pot but f uh, from plate scrapings that have been saved for giving to the dogs so in other words um, off the, the patrons scrapes leftovers scraped off the patrons pla plates and he's given a portion of this and stands and eats eats it avidly at the door of the restaurant and he says at one point that it's, it's more delici delicious than any five-star meal that he's had in a five-star restaurant. But then he gets starts to get sick, um, uh, first with, with stomach cramps, later on diarrhea and vomiting and he becomes more and more dehydrated and racked by pain but keeps on practicing through this. Another little bit here. The good news about pain is the way it cries out for attention. If you place your mind on your pain, you know just where your mind is. The trick is to stay aware of the mind most of the time. No, sorry, let me say that again. The trick is to stay aware of the mind. Most of the time, when pain asks for attention, we respond by trying to get rid of it. Pain becomes an object outside the mind that needs to be ejected, thrown out. Here's the curious, counterintuitive aspect about pain. When we meet pain with resistance, the pain does not diminish. Instead, we add suffering to the pain. The feeling sensation of pain arises in the body. The negative reaction to pain arises in the mind of the fixed self and transforms physical pain into an enemy. That's how suffering arises. 
When we try to get rid of pain, we pit ourselves against ourselves, becoming private war zones, not environments best suited for healing. For many people, self-pity attaches to sickness like sticky glue, and the voice of the ego asks, why me? Yet this voice does not reside with the pain in the body, but with the mind that identifies with the pain. He goes on to talk about how, as a young monk, he had learned how to do pain meditation, starting with very reasonably mild pains and, and learning the technique when it wasn't too, too uh, difficult to do so. He says, pain med meditation comes under a category called reverse meditations. Reverse means that we deliberately invite whatever is unwanted and unwelcome. If we normally associate practicing breathing meditation in a peaceful rural landscape, then we try the same meditation in a low-class car of an Indian train or at a rock concert. If full-bloom roses are pleasing objects of form meditation, then we might try excrement. So um, with pain, and this is something that we find in our types of meditation as well, is, is we learn to, to relax into the pain, lean into it rather than pull away. He continues, a common metaphor for the entire Buddhist path is swimming against the stream. This refers to the reverse aspect of all forms of mind training. To investigate consensus reality reverses social norms. In a noisy and materialistic society, to sit down and remain still and quiet is a reverse activity. To devote even one hour a day to becoming nobody when we could be in the world became becoming somebody reverses socially rewarding good goals. A, uh, a, an hour on Facebook instead of an hour sitting. Becoming somebody or becoming nobody. To aspire that all sentient beings have happiness and, and are free from suffering runs counter to self-centered preoccupations. When we take a wide look at reverse, we can appreciate that the meaning runs much deeper than labeling a category of discrete exercises. It can become a fundamental principle for guiding daily life situations. It can be used to cut through the mindless behavioral loops and for using disruption to wake us up from our sleepwalking habits. If the avoidance of death is the social standard, then contemplating death becomes a reverse activity. This does not mean that we reject the sadness of death. We will die, and the people we love most will die, and this is the precious heartbreak of our lives. But the fear and perplexity that surround this ordinary trauma are not inevitable. By facing our fear of the future, we transform the present. And this teaching that we, he gives here is a preface to um, um, the continuing st story where he, he finds himself getting, getting sicker and sicker. Um, he has no medicine, money for medicine or treatment. Um, and 
he starts at a certain point after about um, four days of this, three or four days, he starts to worry. Um, and he, he switches back and forth between this worry and, and starting to um, do some of the practices that he's learned as part of his training um, around uh, preparation for death. And as he gets weaker, he, he um, suddenly is in a dilemma because he, he, can, he can either just keep going and go wherever this process takes him, or he could call for help, get somebody, uh, one of the attendants of this park, to um, call for him to his, his home monastery and um, um, get, get some kind of rescue happening. But at the same time, he's pulled in another direction, which is to see the process as an opportunity to really go deeply into the nature of, of the self. And for a while, this sort of indecision in him, um, he says it, it brewed like a storm. I could not decide what to do, and the indecision started to brew like a storm, the clouds growing darker and more ominous. I do not want to die, but my training has been to appreciate whatever arises, and that includes sickness and death. This is what I told the Asian man, if you can accept whatever happens, good or bad or indifferent, that is the best practice. This Asian man is a, a fellow pilgrim at this um, park, who had been struggling in his own practice and had come and talked to Mingyu Rinpoche earlier on, and Mingyu had, had given him advice. But he continues, but my vow to save all sentient beings includes myself. If I try to save this life, is that running away from acceptance? But what life am I talking about? This gross physical body that must die someday? Is that what saving all sentient beings means? Maybe not, for we are not simply medical caretakers. We wish to save the physical life so that beings may recognize their own inherent wisdom and know the deathless reality of unborn awareness. This is the Bodhisattva vow, to save all sentient beings from ignorance, delusion, and the misperception that external phenomena are the cause of their suffering and to bring them to the realization of their own wisdom. This is what I can do if I continue to live. But the Bardo texts, that's the text around death, or the intermediate realm, say that nothing, nothing provides a better chance for the absolute recognition of the enlightened mind than dying. So how can I turn my back on this opportunity? Ever think back to um, what uh, Tenke Denson said, um, set your eyes on the absolutely inextricable extricable within yourself. Or, or um, Banke, who wrote, being born into this world and having a body, we must expect to meet with illness. But when you conclusively realize the unborn Buddha mind, you don't distress yourself over the sufferings of inner illness. 
you clearly distinguish illness as illness, suffering as suffering. Since the Buddha mind is dowed with a marvelously illuminating dynamic function, not only illness but everything there is can be clearly recognized and distinguished. That's why when you're faced with the sufferings of illness, if you simply don't get involved with them or attach to them, there's nothing you won't be able to endure. So just go with the illness, and if you're in pain, go ahead and groan. But whether you're sick or you're not, always abide in the unborn Buddha mind. This um, is the very same term that, that Mingyur Rinpoche uses here. So he struggled mightily with this, with this dilemma, going back and forth. He goes on to say, uh, A ball of iron stuck in my throat, blocking my breath, strangling any capacity for making a decision. Back and forth I went. This indecision cannot be sustained. I must choose one direction. Either one will be better than this. Go, stay, go, stay. Suddenly, I saw that I did not have to choose between living and dying. Instead, I had to let my body take its natural course and abide in the recognition of awareness with whatever happened. If this is my time to die, let me accept my death. If this is my time to live, let me accept my life. Acceptance is my protection. I told myself this and sought affirmation in a prayer by Tokme Zangpo. And this is this is um, this is the prayer. If it is better for me to be ill, give me the energy to be ill. If it is better for me to recover, give me the energy to recover. If it is better for me to die, give me the energy to die. Of course, we all know that he didn't die, because <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to write the book if he had. Um, we haven't got time now to go, go into all this, the story of, of, of um, in detail, but um, he goes forward with this, this deep acceptance, um, this, this equanimous mind of no resistance. And really this, this is um, what uh, Basso's words, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, express. One song who comments on this this koan in the Book of Equanimity. Equanimity says, "When the ancients were ill, they still did Buddha's work. When the ancients were ill, they did still did Buddha's work." We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate.
Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the gateway of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.